This is part two of the Bob Miranda story. Last week's episode took us through his amazing and successful rise across the corporate ladder. After having served various stints with companies like Kellogg's and General Mills, he switched gears and pivoted into the world of politics, construction, and even finance. There wasn't a thing in the world that could slow Bob down, and when hepatitis tried to kill him, he just took another job and found himself back in the food industry, this time running manufacturing plants for ConAgra before taking another pivot and finding himself in the world of biopharma. Bob's second act brings him full circle. Fresh out of a divorce, he's now found his way back to Abilene, Kansas, where it all started. And I'll tell you, the weirdest thing is to be gone for 40 years from your hometown that's a small town that doesn't change a lot. and Half your friends are still there, but they're all 40 years older, but you don't know that you are. And, and you remember them from when you saw them last, which might be when you were 20. And you see and hear all the things that went on in their lives, and they find out all the things that went on in your life. And it's just amazing that so much happens. And there's no one better than the other. I mean, when my wife and I transferred every two or three years around the country. My best friend married one of my girlfriends from high school. And God, I wish we could travel like you. And I was like, man, I wish my kids would grow up with grandma and grandpa a block away. So grass is always greener on the other side. It's always that way. Everybody wishes they had something than what they have. And everybody else is wishing they had what you had. It's kind of funny world that From Weekly RM, it's Beyond the Isles with Nick Castro, a show about the dreamers, innovators, and the road to making it between your favorite isles. I got a divorce about that point in my life, and I had to stop and rethink what's important, what's not important. And, you know, that set me back from a personal standpoint. It's probably the worst thing I've ever done in my life. I don't, yeah. I'm not proud to say I got a divorce, but, uh, you know, my kids had gone to college. My youngest had just gone to college. So it seemed like the right time if you have to have timing. And at that point in my life, we sold, I sold everything, you know, settled the divorce. And I just decided I was going to travel the world and let somebody else pay for it. So I started consulting. And okay. so I did assignments in Mexico, China, Europe, here, there, because you know, remember, I've been in the food industry a long time. I'm an old guy. So I have a lot of knowledge, practical skills, ability to plan and organize. So I spent the next, let me think about that, two, three years. Just I don't want to gloss over this though, because I think people take for granted how hard it is to really be successful in the food industry. So was the work-life balance, you know, oh, yeah. a contributing factor for that? Yeah, the work-life balance was out of whack. Got two girls that are great athletes, and you're running one here, and the wife's running one there, and she was an executive of a company. And I'm not making excuses. I mean, you know, we loved each other since whatever college, college sweetheart. But yeah, you're busy. You know, we were so busy being busy in our professional lives and trying to raise the kids and try to do all these things. You know, we neglected each other, and that's just sad. That happens. In, I would advise anybody to, you know, slow down and look at what's important in life because we were both fast trackers. And yes, I traveled a lot and that doesn't help your situation. So do you have, do you have any regrets? If you had to do it over, would you do it all over again? The heartache is you never want to break up your family. You know, you never get over a divorce because every Christmas, Thanksgiving, friends of friends, marriages, and I still care about my wife and I think she still cares about me, but 
On the other hand, I've had so much personal freedom. You know, once the kids are gone, you should be settling down and getting in the rocking chair. But I'm 63 and I don't plan on settling down anytime soon. So in a lot of ways, that freedom lets me keep taking on new adventures like Farmer Direct Foods. Okay, so you tri- so that happened. You went back into consulting, traveled the world again, got the Midas touch. I'm sure you made tons of people oh, tons God. of money. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a lot of fun. I started up a lot of factories, helped a lot of different people. It was enjoyable, really enjoyable. And was that the last stop before ending up at Farmer Direct? I was helping with a cheese plant for craft, and you know. I had found out my sister had stage four cancer. You said you had cancer in your life. And she was the caregiver for my 90-year-old mother. So in 2016, I found that all out in 15. And I started prepping for now what am I going to do? You know, and I took an assignment down in uh, Springfield, Missouri, thinking that was close. I was running from Minnesota there and trying to stop at home. And then finally, one day, it just dawned on me, I don't need to work. I mean, why am I working? I'm working to feed my ego. And so I decided just to move home. And I spent, well, I still work. I can't help myself. I'm a type <laughs> A. So I became, I volunteered for economic development in Abilene in 2016, bought a house a block away from my mom and sister, my boyhood home, you know, was a block away. And I spent good time with my family. And a year later, my mother passed away, <clears throat> away. And another year later, my sister passed away. And right before my mother did, this whole Farmer Direct opportunity came up. So I came here in 2017. Yeah. It's got to be rough, but, uh, you know, just from my own personal experience, I know that the moments that you have towards that, you know, that final moment with your loved ones, uh, it, it ends up meaning a lot. So I'm sure you enjoyed and are happy that you did ultimately oh, yeah. come back home. And I'll tell you, the weirdest thing is to be gone for 40 years from your hometown that's a small town that doesn't change a lot. And half your friends are still there, but they're all 40 years older, but you don't know that you are. And, and you remember them from when you saw them last, which might be when you were 20. And you see and hear all the things that went on in their lives. And they find out all the things that went on in your life. And it's just amazing that so much happens. And there's no one better than the other. I mean, when my wife and I transferred every two or three years around the country, my best friend married one of my girlfriends from high school. Then, God, I wish we could travel like you. And I was like, man, I wish my kids would grow up with grandma and grandpa block away. So grass is always greener on the other side. It's always that way. Everybody wishes they had something than what they have. And everybody else is wishing they had what you had. It's kind of funny funny world that way yeah and so why farmer direct foods i mean it almost seems like you could have done anything well i wasn't looking for a job i just got done getting a new hotel in town and i got a new love's gas station and i was kind of getting a little bored i mean that wasn't very challenging i mean it sounds like it but not really and so i don't have anybody reporting to me i'm just out doing you know sales marketing economic development um, my buddy from college 
had been buying and selling grain for this company for over 20 years. They were having some difficulties and they needed somebody that could really come in and grab the reins. And so he recommended me. I went and met the board, did an interview. And, you know, basically I had the schooling. I grew up in this area. You know, it's a milling company. That's where I started. It's funny. I went full circle in my life and went right back into an elevator flour mill where I started. But, you know, it's been so much fun because we're small. We're like a family. And, you know, I got when I started here, there was like seven of us. Now we got about 15 of us. Our business has doubled. I plan on doubling it again. And, you know, we make a great product. I mean, King Arthur, I got to say, King Arthur Whole Wheat Flour, it's good stuff. It's good because we make it. And then we also have our private label that now I'm expanding on. And, you know, I feel good about what we do. I help my farmers. We help the health of the U.S. I help employment in the area. You know, we're all repressed with COVID and this and that, but uh, not us. You know, we're making the food and, you know, we're successful at it. Okay. Now, yeah, they were struggling. They needed some help and a turnaround. Anybody could have done that. But why was it some, was there anything about the product, or the farmers, or what was it? Like, what was it really that attracted you to it? Other than the challenge, or was it just a challenge? I mean, was it, well, was it, was it the ego and wanting to say, yes, I can do it? That's, that's part of it because, you know, one of the guys is a pastor that sits on the board. And I just told him, if listen to that story I just told you. I probably have worked in, I know I've lived in seven different states, worked in probably 30 of the 50 United States. I've worked in six or eight or 10 different countries. When somebody tells me there's a problem and it's an uphill battle, that's the one I want to step into. If it was easy, anybody could do it. If it's a challenge, I want to do it because I don't, I'm not very good at just mediocre, go to work for 40 years, do the same job and retire. I always want a challenge. So when they said they were in trouble, they needed some help. I thought, okay, let's see what we can do. You know? Okay. So what are some of the challenges that you've uh, faced? Well, <laughs> we had some financial difficulties. Uh, King Arthur's pretty tough customer. They have very high standards. My second year into the job, this wheat market goes up and down and sideways all the time. And to find a very high quality wheat can be difficult depending on what's going on in the growing season. It's not always in everybody's control. Nature has a lot to do with it as far as rainfall and or you can have a bumper crop. And last night we had five inches of rain in about two hours here. Now, thank God we'd already all in this valley harvested our wheat. But if you hadn't and that rainstorm hit, that crop's wiped out. So you get hailstorms, you get tornadoes, you get floods. And this year, in fact, up in North and South Dakota, they've been in a drought. And they're saying 30% of the wheat won't even be brought to harvest this year. And what that translates to is high prices. So the challenges I had was, you know, finding the right quality. We started to get bigger, you know, hiring the right new people, putting training programs in place, putting processes in place, gearing up, 
And just as we were starting to recover in this whole process, COVID hit and immediately our business doubled. So all of a sudden I get a phone call from Brad Heald at King Arthur. We need to double production. We started working 12 hour days, six days a week, working as hard as we could. We had to start putting some people on and a good thing. Another, I guess I'm lucky stroke of fate, whatever you want to call it. They shut down the Kansas State University, where the only flour milling school in the world is located. So I called up the dean of the school, who I happen to know personally. And a week later, we absolutely doubled our production with a bunch of smart, energetic, go get them, can get it done, attitude kids. And we just tore that thing up. For the next year, you know, we used to make well, 15 to 18 trucks a month, we were making 50. And it's not let up. I've now got two more new interns. Now everybody at K-State wants to come work here because we're very hands-on. They got the old man that can tell them stories about his life and, and show them what opportunities are available to them. If they want to take it, life's just wonderful. But you got to be willing to accept challenge. You know. Not- now that it seems like just a perfect stroke of timing also. I mean, COVID as devastating as it was, it was this resurgence for really the baking world, the at-home baker, yeah. people to experiment, you know, not just with different types of flowers, but with wheat berries, whole grains, grains yeah, a lot at of home. people grind their own at home. So, you know, and businesses tapered off some. We've had a little breathing room. Um, I think, well, I'll just say COVID on average created a 50% jump in business. It's tailed off a little bit, but I'd say now we're still at 125% of where we were two years ago. I think the fact that many people did get to sit home, bake bread, make pies with their kids, be a family unit again, because you couldn't go out and do anything. COVID's the extreme. You don't go anywhere. You're locked down. But, you know, a little quality time at home, cooking your own food, spending time with your kids. Those aren't bad things to be doing. Yeah. And I I hear you keep using the term whole wheat flour. Is is there something different between the flour that you make and pack for King Arthur and, you know, maybe some of the flours that we're used to buying at grocery stores? Yes. 90% of all the flour used in the United States is called a patent or all-purpose flour. What does that mean? Well, the reason we had to go to school for four years and get a university degree is all about learning how to take, just look at a football or a basketball. You got the leather on the outside and the ball bounces. We went to school to learn how to slowly strip that leather off the ball, which is called the brand coat, so that you get to the white fluffy stuff in the middle, which is endosperm and or flour, starch. We talked about that a little earlier. So what happens is in the milling process, there's a lot of different things that you do that gently peel that brand coat off because everybody wants white flour. In fact, when I started out back in the early 80s, we actually blew chlorine gas into flour to make it white. Now, of course, that got stopped, but everybody perceives white flour as healthy, good, all that good stuff. The truth of the matter is that brown leather that we're stripping off the ball 
is what has all the nutrients, all the B vitamins, the minerals, all the good stuff for the health of your body is in the whole wheat. But because marketing throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s pushed white flour, everybody perceives white as pure. And the reality is that white flour has artificial additives put it back into it to give it the nutritional value. And that's why they call it enriched flour. Because if you ate the whole wheat, you don't have to enrich it. It's all natural and it's healthy and it's the way it was supposed to be. That's a brilliant marketing term because I think people would look at it as saying enriched and think that it's enriched on top of, as as opposed to what you said, which was stripped and then put back in. It almost just- White flour, you strip out the nutritive value and you enrich it back to what a whole wheat flour is. The government and the school systems now are starting to say we need whole grains in our programs because if you look at young kids today, they're obese. They're obese because that leather football that we're stripping off the brand is fiber. You need fiber in your system as you digest and you need high quality nutrients. But if you're eating fast food with cheap patent flour, and I mean cheap flour, there's a lot of different grades of flour and those hamburger buns and hot dog buns, that's some pretty low grade stuff. That's why they can sell it to you for $3.99 at a fast food hamburger joint. So healthy living is about eating healthy food. And if you're getting all natural, everybody wants to go to the farmer's market now. They want fresh fruits and vegetables grown locally. They should be demanding the same thing from their flour. So do you think people realize that the flour that they're getting or using isn't whole wheat flour? I mean, I see whole wheat on a ton of labels. What's Is there a marketing difference? or? Well, I got to be careful. Remember, I'm a food industry executive. And I've worked for a lot of different people. but. Uh, That's more marketing than reality. When someone says, you know, whole wheat, whatever, the thing you can always do is go to the side panel, any piece of food you're ever eating and read the ingredient list. And it's in descending order from the most in it to the least amount. And if all of a sudden you see enriched flour, sugar, dextrose, whatever, whole wheat, that means there's some whole wheat in it, not that it's whole wheat flour. And not that people are trying to be deceptive, but true, all natural, wholesome, everything in it. It's like orange juice concentrate, 100% orange juice that has the pulp in it. That's an orange that's been crushed versus some sugar laden, something tastes like orange juice that has a little bit of orange juice in it. So, I mean, your flour must be a little bit more expensive than what people are using because it's obviously a higher quality. It's a different process, it seems like. And it's I not- would not say it's more expensive. It is on a pound per pound basis. You go to a Walmart and see a 99 cent bag of gold medal flour or ADM or anybody else. It's because these mills are processing millions and millions and millions of pounds a year. So their cost structure makes it cheaper. But if you think about it from a nutritional value and what you're getting, you know, they always say you get what you pay for. What's the difference paying three or $4 for a bag of flour, which normally is what they cost, um, versus an extra dollar to know you're getting a high quality food. And if you're eating our flour, 
you know where your food came from. I think you bring you bring a very good point of looking at food and the price of food, not necessarily from the price per unit, but the price per nutritional yeah. value of it. And I don't think most people do that. I mean, honestly, I don't think most people even read nutrition panels. I don't think most people even look at ingredient decks like you're asking them to. We talk about calories. You know, the average person uses 2,000 calories a day. Well, it's a lot easier to go to Burger King and get your 2,000 calories with Coke and French fries and a greasy burger that's probably half meat. I shouldn't say Burger King. In general, fast food. Then you go to a farmer's market, a local restaurant. A lot of people now are shop local, know where your food comes from. That's a real cow that got cut up at Joe's farm. Those tomatoes come from Mary's garden. And, you know, maybe that sandwich costs seven or eight dollars versus a three ninety nine er. But when you're done, you feel satisfied, but your body feels good. My Columbia experience proved it to me. I felt great and I didn't understand why I didn't have a lot of sugars. I didn't have a lot of. Well, the worst part about the food industry is all the preservatives put into it. I don't know why we have to cremate people. Just put them in the ground because there's enough preservatives in everybody from what we eat that, you know, we don't need all that. There's a lot of bad stuff in our food today so they can make it, package it, stick it somewhere and bring it out on the shelf when necessary. The good news is if there's ever Armageddon, all that food will be sitting in somebody's pantry. It'll still be good. You know, five years from now, it's fine. Forget about that best if used by date. That stuff isn't going to, yeah, it's going to be there a long time. We saw that happen. I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure a lot of our audience <laughs> has some leftover pantry items from. Yeah, uh, now my year. flour will just disintegrate, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll just mold itself out because it's all natural, you know. You get what you pay for. Such simple advice. So often we find ourselves looking at numbers and trying to see how much we can save that we forget that the most common way to get prices and costs down is to take some of the good stuff out and add in things like preservatives and artificial ingredients. This isn't to say that processed foods are bad. There's a place for everything. But if you're looking to see what the true cost of something is, don't forget that nothing is free in this world. And the trade-off for saving a couple of cents can mean that your health and nutrition is the one paying for the difference. If you enjoyed these stories, please give us a follow on Instagram at bta.podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.